That's Bill E. Brown and the Top Notch Ensemble. It's Monday morning, and you're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org, and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. It's time for the Tom Ficklin Show with Tom Ficklin. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's always a pleasure on Monday. I was Lucy, thank you for that great introduction. I was just chatting up before we came on air that, indeed, I do wake up on Mondays. I don't. If I didn't do the show on Mondays, I would probably be asleep until Wednesday. But it's a good discipline for me, and uh, I just enjoy the discipline. And really, a shout-out to Paul and Lucy and the whole creative force behind this radio station. It's community radio. It's local radio. It's national radio. It's even international radio. And speaking of international and local and, and uh, state, we have a gentleman with us this morning, I think is really, I don't think I know, is really exciting for us to, to know more. You probably have heard of Charlie um, Musser, Charlie, uh, the professor of film and media studies at Yale. But we're going to talk about some things that really uh, you may not know. He's kind of a, we were kidding about, I was going to call him a renaissance man, and he truly is a, a renaissance person. I guess I have to be politically correct. But we're going to talk about his pioneers of African-American cinema. It's a five-DVD set. We're going to talk about Calhoun College here at Yale University, his involvement in that situation, we're going to talk about the New Haven Documentary Film Festival and his new book, Politicking and Emergent Media, U.S. Presidential Elections of the 1890s. Uh, Charlie is professor of, as I mentioned, of film and media studies at Yale, but also professor of American studies and theater studies and director of the Yale Summer Film Institute. You may wonder how he does all that, but that's why he gets, I guess, four, five salaries, Charlie? <laughs> Or six? <laughs> I forgot. I forgot the number. But the yellow. I, I think you can ask my family why ask how fa- I do it because they see. don't see me as much as they should. I see. Well, and that's that's the thing about a person that's a professional and a career person and really dedicated to his art. In your case, your various arts. How do you do that life life work balance? But that's a focus of another show. We're just so glad to hear you to have you here today to focus on your your your, your curatorial, your 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 your, your professorial, your really your mentorship to the Yale alums, the Yale students, the New Haven community, the, the world community, the college community. So let's just jump right in, uh, Charlie. The you, you mentioned that this Pioneers of African-American Cinema, it's a five-DVD set, and it was actually reviewed in the New York Times, uh, but by Jay Hoberman. This, this is, fa- this is uh, personally very much of interest to me in terms of the Pioneers of African-American Cinema. I know I attended at the Whitney Humanities Center. You had uh, Oscar Michaud. You had one of the original right. Oscar, Oscar, Oscar Michaud films, and he's always been an, an idol of mine. And when people say, who do I, what kind of role model do I have? He, he jumps immediately into mind about his, oh, his creativity to getting things done with minimal resources, separate from how you might view his work. But Oscar Michaud, I'm going to include his link and some of the other links that will come up through the show, Charlie, on this uh, audio file that will be available after, uh, after we speak. But Charlie, good morning. Good morning. It's actually great to be on your show. We run into each other, you know, around New Haven, uh, you know, a fair amount. And, we have, uh, yeah, yeah. So finally, we, we come together and have a conversation like this. I, it, I'm indeed. really uh, pleased to be here and to do that. Thank you. The, 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 the pleasure's all mine. You, met, you you did actually invite me for, I think, coffee or tea maybe seven months ago, and I put you off. Then you invited me to participate on a panel on the, the Black Panthers, and I gave you some, some oddball excuse about my uh, not being available. But you captured me. You know, I'm, I'm captured. Likewise. Uh, but let's chat about the pioneers of African-American cinema, this five DVD set. Uh, we hear so much about the 
oh, The Birth of a Nation, uh, other films that have come up uh, over the last 10 or so years. But people forget that there's a, a, a deep history about what cinema means, particularly from the African-American cinema, even before the black exploitation film. So share a little bit with our audience about this new five, five DVD set. Yeah, I mean, this is a set that uh, I am the co-curator of, and, and uh, actually DJ Spooky, Paul Miller, is uh, the executive producer, and he uh, played an important role in, in this uh, project, as did uh, Jackie Stewart, who's professor of African-American studies and film studies at University of Chicago. So, um, you know, it was a great team. It was a great team. And, um, you know, but it, it, it actually came out of, decades of, of work in some way. Mm. Um, mm. We, uh, we managed to get all of Oscar Micheaux's silent films in this mm-hmm. DVD set. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the first time that's, that's happened. Uh, you know, I think one of them at least had never been released uh, commercially yes. in, in any form. Uh, that symbol, the unconquered from 1920. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but others, uh, you know, within our gates had, had been on videotape and the videotape ended up on a DVD, but it was not a very good quality. So anyway, um, you know, it's, it's really exciting to bring his work to the screen in a way that, you know, I think people can get a sense of the quality and, and, and really look at it and appreciate it. So, um, you know, this actually all started at Yale and New Haven, mm. Uh, mm. like, you know, I think it was 22 years ago okay. when uh, we had a, we, we premiered uh, the Whitney Humanity Center. We had our first 35 millimeter screening and conference uh, in the Whitney Humanity Center. Ah. 53 Wall Street, on, and it was called uh, Oscar Micheaux and His Circle, African-American Cinema, mm-hmm. uh, Afri- African-American Filmmaking and Race Cinema of the Silent Era. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, back then it was really hard to see these things. Uh, you know, a couple of Micheaux's silent films only survived because they s- were in European archives, which mm-hmm. means that they didn't have English intertitles. So, you know, one of the things we had to do was translate and then ultimately ah. insert the intertitle. So for instance, I, uh, I translated, uh, the intertitles from, from, uh, symbol, the unconquered mm-hmm. and put them in. Uh, so, uh, so that it was great. Actually, it had happened once in a kind of quick and dirty, uh, event for Turner classic movies. And, you know, so we were able to correct a few mistakes, but, but keep the, uh, Max Roach score. Mm, uh, tremendous. But but how did so DJ Spooky Jackie Stewart and and share with us about the the, re, the review of, in the Times as well. But where was the, the the critical mass of creativity? How I mean, people always have dreams and visions and ideas, and then they wake up and they forget about them. They go to sleep right. and they forget about them. Where was kind of the sticking glue to kind of make uh-huh. this thing happen? Yeah, well, well, you know, this is uh, the review for the New York Times is the kind of thing that you uh, you know you 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 would die for. Hmm. But uh, you know, so Jay Hoberman. Uh, who's a big Oscar Micheaux fan. And I think he, he needed the, he wanted to write about Oscar Micheaux and the only way he could do it would be to like, just say that Uh, this was like a really great DVD set. So he said, uh, from the perspective of cinema history and American history, for that matter, there's never been a more significant video release than pioneers of African-American cinema. Now that's, that's so that got him a lot of column inches to to talk about Micheaux, which is what he wanted in the New York times. And why did he think that was the case? Again, we hear about, Oh, Tyler Perry, we hear about Spike Lee, we hear about Sorsese, we hear about you, you name it. Um, but for him to say that, and in terms of, excuse the expression, but but a white vehicle and not just uh, not, not black enterprise or something, that's, again, that that's profound. Yeah, well, um, 
You know, I mean, for me, I have to say. I mean, that, what do you think his appreciation? What? Why was his appreciation so deep? Well, I think for him, you know, Michaud is a kind of radical aesthetics. And I also think for all of us, you know, he really deals with some of the fundamental issues of American life. Mm. You know, so mm. W.E.B. Du Bois said, you know, that the color line is, uh, you know, the issue of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Michaud was obsessed by the, the color yes. line. He didn't like Du Bois, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. But mm-hmm. I mean, but I think that they shared that. Um so, you know, then there's that other cliche that cinema is the art form of the 20th century. So you bring mm, these two mm, things together, mm, mm. and the person who's at the center of that is Michaud. Sure, even before we had this word intersectionality, Michaud was, was embodying it. Right. So, you know, he's uh, infinitely complex, and and, uh, and to try and un- understand the what's going, I mean, not un- to appreciate what's going on in his films, I think is... Uh, something that's a challenge. Uh, he was really someone whose, whose work was, uh, you know, he was considered a great showman, but mm-hmm. not necessarily a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, he's, he's remains the most interesting, uh, filmmaker of the silent period. And, and we're deliberately say. Charlie teasing the audience to kind of Google, and I'll include some links for Michelle and we could chat about him for the, Oh, the, as I say, the next two days. And that's why you had the five DVD set for people to kind of, uh, empower themselves and, and, well, take advantage of this information. How, in terms of securing the, the DVD, how would one purchase it? Is it on Amazon? Is it what's, what's the availability? Yeah, I mean, it's it's on Amazon. I'd like to think that maybe the New Haven Public Library will get a copy. Mm-hmm. But yes. um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 generally available, and uh, you know, I think if you look around, you can get a, a half decent discount. So, and again, the pioneers of African American cinema and DJ Spooky's role. I mean, he's listed as executive producer. Right. Oftentimes, people aren't aware of what executive producer really connotes or, or means. Yeah. Well, he really, I think took charge of the music in mm-hmm. lots of ways, but he was a, you know, an important force. So I, so when I st- started working with Kino and, and Brett Wood on this, um, you know, it wasn't clear that we could get certain things. Like it wasn't clear that we would be able to get symbol, the unconquered on the mm-hmm. DVD set. Mm-hmm. But then I told Paul Miller, DJ Spooky, that there was this Mac Roach score that, mm. you know, that had been done for Turner Classics movies, and that was it. So, come hell or high water, that that DVD, <laughs> that, that film was going to mm-hmm. be on the DVD set. So, for me, that was really important. Um, I, I mean, not only for the Max Roach score, but because that was the, you know, the film that had never been previously available, mm. And, mm. and I think, uh, you know, needs to be seen. So, so it's those kinds of things, uh, you know, he, he, I think, connected with musicians so and it gave it gave the dvd set a certain kind of weight so that in fact in other situations where archives were not eager to go out of their way to uh, make material available uh, that the kino lober the the distributor of this ultimately was willing to wait until it did become available so you know i really think of him as just playing a really crucial role in and what I think is is a is a kind of definitive uh, DVD set. Uh, so I'm really deeply grateful to him, as I am, of course, to everyone else involved. For sure. And even I'd, I'd referenced uh, Scorsese earlier, and on the DVD cover, you have that uh, quote from from Martin Scorsese: "This very special collection illuminates one of the most fascinating and unjustly neglected corners of American movie history." So again, that's where I'm really just kind of intrigued with this. What's your, you have a, you have another project down in your mind in terms of uh, anything like this? 
So, well, I mean, we have to see. I mean, I'm talking to Kino about possibly doing uh, some other things. Actually, uh, right now, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm back trying to actually do a little bit of my own filmmaking. Okay. Uh, All right. We're uh, going to add it so, to the list of something, okay. something to chat about. <laughs> and I, even for the, before we get moved from the, uh, uh, the pioneers of African-American cinema and Oscar Michelle, when you had the screening, I think it was last April or so, you had one or two people present their, their papers on, 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 on uh, Michelle as well. Uh-huh. You had, a, I think it was a Yale PhD student or someone presented. Uh, Gee, I, you know, I, I don't remember. I, I just uh, had a screening of this, uh, of Body and Soul, of the show film with Paul Robeson down at the uh, Rutgers University where he graduated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what's interesting about that film, of course, is that Paul Robeson hated it. It's like, in some ways, it's his most accomplished performance, but uh, it, it's really a film that criticized his... Uh, his involvement in, in these three plays by, uh, by white playwrights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. so uh, Emperor Jones by uh, Eugene O'Neill and All God's Chillin' Got Wings also by him. And then yes. uh, a film by, I mean, a, a play by Nan Bagby Stevens called uh, Roseanne. And so he'd appeared in all these plays more or less at the same time. And Michaud just thought these were, you know, white nightmares uh, Indeed. and uh, obscene, obscene plays. And, so he sort of made use, I mean, he sort of tricked Robeson into making this uh, really wonderful film, and, and which actually in some ways shows Robeson off to great effect at the same time criticizing him. So, you know, when I first started working on this project, Paul Robeson Jr. insisted that that mm. was not his father in the mm. film. Mm. I mean, these films were hard enough mm. to see, so you could think you could get away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, now, of course, you know, it's available uh, on DVD, and mm-hmm. anyone can see it any time, and there's no argument about who that is. In fact, there's going to be an event at Southern Connecticut State University in December uh, uh, about Paul Robeson and a reenactment. And I'll, pl- I'll put more information uh, along with this audio file so you can kind of tune in. The, the Amistad uh, folks are kind of are one of the sponsors. Um, how did you get involved with this this deep passion for film and, and media? And just uh, I mean, from high school, do you remember was there ever a trigger point? Uh, you know, now you're a professor and media and theater studies, but do you remember when you were a teenager or in college? What, do you remember what, what kind of event? Did you have an epiphany one day? or? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, the, these are long, long processes often, but I was yeah. actually uh, uh, designing movie posters uh, for the Yale Film Society uh, as an undergraduate and printing them for mm. Dwight Hall Press. And, mm. and then I discovered I could, uh, in, instead of paying to go see movies, I could get paid to project them. Uh-huh. And then one day someone said, you know, you don't can't just, you don't have to just project them. You can actually make them, which seemed like a really radical idea. Mm. So, I, you know, things got started that way. And then I, I, I moved to New York and, and uh, started knocking on doors and, and I pretty quickly got lucky and ended up working on this documentary, Hearts and Minds, Boy. Uh, which about the Vietnam War, which mm-hmm. ended up winning an Oscar. So I worked on that for two years. And I really, I feel like I learned how to write books. I learned how to, you know, get stuff done by just somehow surviving that film for two years. Boy. And and we're going to talk about your, your most recent book, The politicking and emergent media what did you major in when you were a Yale undergrad well i actually did create my own major in film and media Uh and film and literature actually initially film until i left uh worked in the industry then came back and was no longer worried about the film and wanted to get a little literary background but um yeah you know i think that my my work uh as, as a scholar and historian really actually came came out of that experience so mm. um you know i wanted to sort of know how it all began mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing this kind of trilogy of books on the beginnings of American cinema. And, uh, you know, they, they were, I was sort of riding a wave and, and, uh, those books did well. And so uh, I've sort of, that's what got me here, if you will. Uh, were, were you recruited or because you kind of created some of your, your positions now, they never, you didn't, when you came to Yale, you didn't, uh, step into anybody's shoes. You created some of your own. Well, yeah. I, I mean, there actually is this long, sad history of sort of outstanding people being brought into Yale to teach film and then mm-hmm. being thrown out, mm. not giving them tenure. So oh. I was actually the first person who somehow survived that process uh-huh. and ended up staying, you know, getting tenure. So it was, uh, it was, it was tricky. And in many ways I was just sort of lucky a window opened and closed. You so know? the gray hair, that's to be, that's why the gray hair has got to be merged. Cause <laughs> yeah, for, I think gray is getting to be a little generous. At this <laughs> well, point. Well, well, the gray that I can see there is it's just, uh, tr- tremendous. The let's let's jump because you mentioned you, you use the term radical just in terms of uh, some of the, the information, the conversation we've we just had over the last 10 or 12 minutes. But let's jump to Calhoun College, the residential college here. For those of you that aren't familiar with uh, the Yale University College, the undergraduate setup, you have the residential colleges where the students stay and they eat and they dine. Uh, they do it. They, are, they do go to Yale University, but they also kind of have an identity affinity with their residential college. And I think there's 12 now. Right, it's going to be 14 and, and in just a couple of years. And, 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 and two more that will be uh, launched soon. But Calhoun College is the name of one of them. And you've been involved, uh, in fact, WNHH has had a number of uh, uh, programs pertaining to the Calhoun College renaming who was John C. Calhoun. Uh, why did Yale kind of give that, that name in 19, the early 30s, 1931, 32, 33? Yeah. Um, and what does it mean in terms of identity and progress and not, re- not not reconstructing history, but where is the where do we go when we have uh, symbols that might be oh denigrating to some and and glorified by others? So share it's share a little bit about your your, your involvement with the Calhoun College uh, issue. Yeah, well, I you know I was at Yale as undergraduate, and so I was actually in Berkeley College. So Calhoun College was our sort of sister college, if mm. you will, and. Uh, you know, one of the people who was in Calhoun College at the time was uh, Skip Gates, who's mm, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. gone on to do many, uh, many things in African American studies. So, um, so, you know, I, I didn't really, I, I think that at that point there were so many other things going on. It was the first, I was in the first class that admitted Yale, I mean, admitted women from 68 the beginning. 68 or so, I think. What? Was it 68? It was uh, I, I, 69. 69 I, was, uh-huh. I arrived in the fall mm-hmm. of 69. Mm-hmm. And then there, of course, there was, uh, the Bobby C. Seal trial in May of 1970. There was the Vietnam War going on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there were a lot of sort of really immediate things that we had to think and do about. Uh, but so, so, and, you know, it's complicated because I think that alumni, when they leave, they sort of like to fantasize that the university hasn't changed very much, you know. And so there's, I think alumni are often very resistant, some alumni, shall we say, mm-hmm. are very resistant to the idea of changing the name of a college because, you know, they've always, you know, they know all these people who were in Calhoun, what are they going to call it now? But, um, and I think that, that that's that been one of the difficulties in terms of, or the, where one of the resistance has been in part, at least, to ch- changing the name. But, um, you know, I was thinking initially that, for instance, the shows where I was at, uh, that we should keep the name Calhoun College, but we should change who it was named after. Oh. You know, because there's a lot of Calhouns who, who went through Yale. Okay. And including, actually, 
uh, a PhD student of mine, Claudia Calhoun, whose father was a, is a black cop in Houston, Texas. And, um, you know, so, you know, there's the black Calhouns too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what's interesting was that no one, that no one, that didn't really get a lot of response. Right. And, uh, I, I think that, you know, that, that kind of clever compromise is, uh, is long past. Mm. Um, and, mm. and I, and I think actually, uh, I understood things in a, in a kind of deeper way, new way, because of Corey Menefee. Indeed, and indeed. Corey Menefee is a kind of, I think, hero for me for showing, showing, clarifying a lot of issues. Yes, uh, yes, and, yes. You know, he was also, I think, very courageous. Uh, e- even though I, uh, in 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 that w- one point, he he worked, uh, he was working in Calhoun Dining Hall, and uh, actually, I think a Yale alum very kindly pointed out to him these. Uh, windows of uh stained glass windows of of john c calhoun's slaves and uh you know it just sort of bugged him you know over a long period of time and then finally one day it got to be too much and he just knocked it out indeed indeed and uh you know i i mean what those window and that window in particular uh show is that you know this is not just about a name that calhoun college really is a shrine to white supremacy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know i mean it you know i i have had I've had occasional meals, uh, you know, quite a few meals probably yes. over the years at Calhoun College. I never really paid much attention to it. But um, so, so what triggered you to kind of be involved? Because you follow Cor- Courtney, you went to Corey, rather you went to some of the uh, uh, the judicial hearings. I think you you there was an event after he was exonerated in, in a way right. or forgiven, or perhaps just uh, gotten a partial piece of justice. So, but what was the trigger for you to kind of lend your re- your reputation, your expertise? <laughs> Literally, a lot of Yale faculty members do not do that. So I was intrigued with your personal involvement. You didn't just write about something. You 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 were there, present, supported. Right. Well, you know, I I don't want to exaggerate uh, what this entailed. I, I mean, first of but, all, I mean, you were there. You're, you're, yeah, yeah. You, you, you were, your body was there. I have, I have pictures. <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, it was interesting that Pioneers of African American Cinema was coming out mm-hmm. at the very moment that that this was happening. Yes. And you know the. The court hearings were a block from my office, and mm-hmm. it was summer. I, I mean, so to not go, it seemed to me, I didn't have any excuse. Okay. So right. I would have really had to live with the fact that yes. I was really as, you know, ineffective a, a kind yes. of political activist as, as I probably but am. But you could have attended and just sat in the in, in the public area, but you you publicly, you were quoted, you, you've been involved. Uh, yeah, with- well, I, I was, I mean, you know, he's a he's an extraordinary person. It's not like he was this sort of you know, Black Lives Matter militant who came in there and wanted to make a political point. I mean, he was just someone who was, you know, an yes. ordinary person who finally just got to be too much. And he was very Indeed. apologetic. And he Indeed. was like sort of, I don't know, I found I, I found his thoughts, yeah, he, you yeah, know, he, his, he, his he, position he, in this really moving he, and telling. He, he, and then, of course, you know, there were. So what he did was was not only understandable, it was, like I said, it was totally clarifying of the situation mm-hmm. around Calhoun College. Mm-hmm. And we were going to go through this long back and forth during the school year about if it should be changed or not. But I think when he did that, it was interesting. The New, the, the New Haven Independent at 4 p.m. the night, the afternoon before his hearing at 9 a.m. The, the next morning announced that this was going to happen. And this was one month after he knocked the stained glass window yes. out. And the university had been able to keep it under wraps, indeed, and it was indeed. going. It was obviously tr- hoping that no one would know about this. Yes, and so by nine a.m. the next morning, the courthouse was filled with his supporters, 
and the news media was out there. And so, you know, it's a situation where like, you know, a few people come before the judge before he does. And Indeed. Then he comes and talks to the judge and they say, oh, the university doesn't want to prosecute. And okay, well, we have to have another court hearing to confirm that. And, and so then, you know, that, that hearing's over and he walks out and then everyone gets up and follows him out. And he's like, totally, totally puzzled. Like, what is going on <laughs> indeed, here, right? Indeed, he had indeed. no idea. And yes. So his lawyer took him aside and sort of told him yes. what was up and that he, when he stepped outside, he was going to meet all the news uh, media. So it was really, it, it was really a extraordinary moment in its own way. And, and, and she, she provided pro, pro bono legal assistance yeah, as well. And, but the, but the real thing was, you know, that, he was a hero, fine, but uh, in his own way, right? But but he he lost his job, and that was outrageous, um, you know. Because and so, I think the idea of trying to get his job back uh, was something that mobilized, uh, you know, and, a, a lot of us initially. And and we were, you know, I think quite successful. And uh, I don't want to exaggerate my part. I mean, I think that it was so embarrassing to the university in the end that they had to do it. But, you know, I mean, we were, let me, let me phrase it this way. Uh, Charlie, how many faculty members are employed at Yale? A thousand, 2000, 3000, roughly yeah. adjuncts, assistants. What, what's the ballpark figure? <laughs> I don't know. I think that there's, a, you know, uh, about a little over a thousand who are tenure okay. track. And how tenure. many faculty members did you see out there? Well, there were, yeah, Three, there four. were there were no four or five. Okay, I four think. or five. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so, so, so there you go. Them. Right there you go. Um, <laughs> talk, talk, so we have the rename uh, Lucy. We're going to go to just a brief break, but before we do musical break, and so because of that and other issues, uh, the, the, the Halloween event, you have the renaming. You now have this renaming committee. There's this. It's right about the. Yeah, I mean, I think that the university understands finally that mm-hmm. that this is like a losing hand mm. and that it has to change it. It should change it for all sorts of reasons. And the other thing that Corey added was that it's not just the students who live there, it's the people who work there. Indeed. And those people aren't just there for four years, they're there, you know, for a much longer period of time. And, you, you know, the, the the poignancy of it, I mean, the, the blatancy of it yes. uh, was just irrefutable. So he really, I think, changed the conversation. So and, I, That's right. And, and we hear so often about the, the tipping point, and it's fair to say Chris Rabb comes to mind immediately, uh, Yale alum from Calhoun, that... There have been, been many, and you mentioned Skip Gates. Folks, Calhoun College has been around, as I say, since the early 30s, so you've had black people and white people. You've had students have to endure that. But this, So you have one act similar to Bree Newsom in South Carolina where people might remember she uh, went up the flagpole and took down the, the Confederate flag. But you had this one tipping point, but prior to that, 20, 30, 40 years, people were still enduring and weren't able and successful to kind of cause even uh, or to launch even mod- modest change or attempts for improvement, but this history is often marked by by tipping points, by acts, uh, singular acts. Often the, the kind right. of uh, will kind of launch a wave, a wave of if not reform, if not revolution, if not if not improvement. But sometimes feedback, negative feedback as well. Lucy, let's go to a brief break. You're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show, and I have a Charlie Musser with us and professor of film and media studies at Yale. And we're going to talk about when we come back. Uh, his new book, Politicking and Emergent Media. Uh, we're going to talk about New Haven Documentary Film Festival. Then I think I'm going to grill him with, with a few questions that I haven't kind of shared with him already.
Mandingo ambassadors, and I love to kind of play their their, their music during the show. And Lucy, thanks again for for, for finding that audio file, because uh, again, music, regardless of where it originally uh, came from, I mean, these are U.S. people, U.S. citizens, but also with the African flavor, and some from folks born in Africa. But some would even contend that if you in terms of how far you look at our DNA, that we all came from that that kind of landmass in terms of the original Adam and Eve. But but I digress. That's another show. Uh, Charlie, welcome, welcome back. It's good to chat with you. We were we were just referencing Cal, the Calhoun College phenomenon, phenomenon, the the, the symbolism, the, the the history of it, uh, but also where we move, where we, where do we go from here uh, in terms of the psychological impact, the political impact, the uh, alumni impact. You you shared a few comments that you had that you wanted yeah. to share also. I mean, you know, I think the university actually could do a, a much better job at uh, emphasizing uh, the positive role it had it played in the end of slavery. You know, starting mm-hmm. with the Amistad. Mm-hmm. Uh, trials that were going on at the very moment that uh, John C. Calhoun was a mm-hmm. senator from uh, mm-hmm. South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should be, I mean, I, I think that we should actually rename Calhoun College Amistad College mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Calhoun College is also the only college that touches the green. Mm-hmm. Um, the Amistad uh, uh, trials and, you know, the Yale mm-hmm. professors who were translators. Yes, and, from you the know, Divinity School, yes. That, that, that this was a moment when New Haven and, and Yale certainly came together around the issues of race. It's a very... You know, and there's a lot of, not at Yale, but elsewhere, there's a, in, in New Haven, there's a lot of things named after Amistad. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. so Yale has never done that's that. That's a real good point. So uh, that's what I'd like to see happen to that. And, uh, you know, I, I actually do occasionally write uh, Peter Solovey, uh, the president of Yale, uh, about these issues. And, and, I, and I do get a response. I mean, I do think he is interested and concerned and, and, uh, and actually has a certain kind of flexibility, even though... Mm. One can be frustrated uh-huh. <laughs> at uh-huh. any given moment, but you know that more than twice as many Yale graduates uh, died in the Civil War fighting for the Union cause and you know, mm. for the end of slavery and for a new and better world than died, you know, than 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 were on the Confederate side. Mm-hmm. And I just can't help but think that those soldiers who died must have rolled over in their gla- mm. graves mm. when. Mm. Calhoun College was named after John C. Calhoun. Indeed. And, uh, and, and that's the part that, and part, Charlie, gets hold that thought because I want you to come back, but that's the part that really bewilders me. In a way, I could rationalize, okay, you're going to name something after him in 
1870, 1880, you know, but in 19, but in the early 1930s, the, the, the that name is such a symbolism. That's the part that really kind of, kind of, kind of confuses me. Well, it's just a reminder of how bad race relations were in this country in the night in, into the early thirties. And of course, long beyond that, but I mean that, mm-hmm. that you would not only name a college after, after this white supremacist, but embed those ideas in the very walls in of the, walls, the college. Yes, yes, the way that, it was that, memorialized, that, right. You right. know, so it's really hard to sort of sure that the, argue, oh, well, it's just because he was, uh, you know, a, a statesman of a certain caliber, or Secretary of State, I think, very briefly. Yes, you know, I yes. mean, that's Vice, not Vice what, President also. Yeah, yes. Vice President. It's not what... Uh, and, and head of defense. He was head of the, the, the defense department. So he had ab- the, the, the guns he had. But, but your point's well taken. The other residential colleges, just for our listeners, when you go in, you know the name, but you don't see as many archetypes or pictures or or plaques on, on, of the person that it's named after. So the, that was, as you say, very intentional. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, Peter Solovey at one point pointed out that a number of other colleges were named after slaveholders. But, you know, I don't know that that, that was uh, the basis on which they were sort of named or that that was embedded in the walls. If mm-hmm. it was, it seems to me, then then it would sort of reach this egregious level. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I just said that when they change the name, which they'll have to, that uh, you can really imagine those... Uh, Dead Union soldiers, Yale graduates, yes. uh, you know, singing "Glory, Glory, Hallelujah." <laughs> John Brown's body, sure, maybe sure. that too. Sure. Now, now, I'm not sure if you slipped when you said they have to. Is that still a personal vision, or do, or would you, is your are you betting money that the the name of the college will will indeed be uh, be changed? I mean, again, this is what Corey Menefee made clear: is that you know, this is going to be a recurrent thing, and mm-hmm. every time it recurs, you know, the university is going to get terrible publicity. Uh, you know, it's bad for the Yale brand. I I don't like to think in those terms, but you know, mm-hmm. they, I don't think I don't think that people want to. People who are associated with Yale don't want to keep on being associated with, with this with this <laughs> issue. Point. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it's you know, I, I think they're eager to change it. Now, that doesn't mean I think the real question is change to what, mm-hmm. right? And you know, it's they're perfectly capable of looking for a wishy-washy compromise name. I, I mean, so, you know, I, I think that it's still very much an open boy, question boy. and concern. I, yeah, I, I, lo- I love the Amistad suggestion. Um, obviously, the Boucher, Edward Boucher. Also, I was, I'm a graduate of the D- Divinity School, and the D- James Pennington is a gentleman that the Divinity School has recently, uh, oh, they've named a, a uh, one of the large classrooms after him, and he was kind of a, at the Divinity School, not a graduate, but there's a, I'll, I'll give some links to James Pennington, but there are a few names out here that could be, could, could be could be used like Henry Rowcloud, the first uh, Native American, uh, allegedly from right. from Yale. So it's it's fast on on Fridays. Actually, there's I think there are still protests on Friday there Fridays are. at noon. There are and uh, right people should go and attend. And uh, and uh, you know at first I thought oh well this is a done deal and that this was unnecessary. But I, actually as I listen around the university, I, mm-hmm. I think that actually those protests are are important. Sure, and and you're in touch with that with that theme. I'm, you know, just just looking at you now, and when you referenced your college experiences, your your Vietnam, doing this five DVD set, uh, you've seen the the ebbs and tides. Just historically, I mean, you've studied history, but you've also been a part. You mentioned the the Bobby Seale trial and and the Black Panthers. Uh, so you you've seen some 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 turmoil, and and also just the student input over the last last few years, last well, twenty you know, thirty years. When you're a, a, around as long as we are, you know, suddenly, you know, what's what was in the present, and we we really had no perspective on mm-hmm. i mean we gradually 
you know, mm-hmm. are able to look back at it and with a certain kind of historical understanding of sure. that we happen to be involved in these events that were that were important. Mm-hmm. But can, can we should we jump to your book? Sure. Just, just as a, as a, as a segue in terms of the uh, your your new book, politicking and emergent media, U.S. presidential elections of the 1890s. Uh, there's also a website that I'll include when we kind of post the information. Separate apart from the current political situation, I guess we have 28 more, Lucy, how many more days do we have? 28 more days, 30 days until the election? 21. 20, 20, 20. 21 or so, but the, the, believe it or not, there is an election coming 22. up. 22. There's an election coming up, uh, but this politic, politicking and emergent media, U.S. presidential elections of the 1890s, what's that all about? Yeah, well, you know, we've been going through a period with all this kind of new media coming in and, and uh, transforming uh, the electoral process, and, and I became... You know, really interested in this with Barack Obama, mm. and I think mm. that you know, Barack Obama won the Democratic nomination, and quite possibly, although maybe less clear, the uh, the, the, the general uh, election. The, the yeah. general election mm-hmm. You know, because of his ability to work with new media, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Hillary Clinton back in two thousand four, you lo- you went to her YouTube page, uh, and it was just like creaky, and you just like <laughs> said, "Uh oh." <laughs> While you went to Barack Obama's YouTube. Yes you know, page and he just, the people he had working with him. Yes. So were, uh, you know, it was transformative yes. I mean, I th- and that was a very close primary actually. And I, th- I think it really made, made a difference. Uh, you know, his, uh, it's interesting now, uh, if you go on the web, people often say it's his yes, I can speech that he gave after losing the New Hampshire primary mm. that led him to the, mm. the, uh, the nomination mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm, presidency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a speech that if we hadn't, didn't have the internet, you know, uh, true. Would have we been wouldn't lost. have been yeah. able to look at yeah. it again because you know it, a lot of other things were going on. Yes. Hillary Clinton had won. It was yes. late at night. A lot of things, but uh, you know they reposted that to the internet, and then of course uh, there's the what followed up not not that long after was the Will I Am mm-hmm. campaign mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we can. Mm-hmm. And you know I, I think that was probably the there's a long tradition of campaign songs uh, in politics, but I think that was probably the most successful of all time. Indeed, uh, okay. In, in terms right. of making a difference uh, for him. So I was very interested in, in how this was happening. Uh, well, and, but at the same time, you know, I was, uh, I've always been interested in the beginnings of cinema uh, and, and how it all began, you know, how, what I chose to work in and study, how did it all begin? Indeed, indeed. And uh, so, you know, just a few months after they f- first started showing motion pictures, uh, the uh, American, Biograph Company uh, showed McKinley at Home, and, hmm. which was a uh, at a campaign rally that was sponsored by the Republican National Committee in uh, Hammerstein's Olympia Music Hall, and so I was all you know I, I sort of was curious about returning to this and sort of reexamining it, um, and reexamining it I think really in a new context because you know I'm in film studies, but as you say, my position is now professor of film and media studies and. And really, we've had a kind of transformation where film studies has become sort of understood as a kind of media studies mm, or, or mm, is part mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, a larger mm-hmm. formation called mm-hmm. media studies. And so I, I sort of wanted to return to the these beginnings yes. and look at them within a broader media context. Um, you know, one of the things that also I think started me on this was that, uh, again, in 2004 and, and afterwards, but in 2004, 
Fahrenheit 911. Mm -hmm. But there was that time, there was that moment when it really seemed that that film, that documentary, which was the most successful documentary commercially of all time in terms of its box office, that it would, you know, undo George W. Bush and and so John Kerry could be president. For our our new uh, listeners or even. Give us a few, Charlie, if you would, a, a few sentences, sentences describing Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit. Yeah, well, I mean, Fahrenheit 9-11 was uh, an attack on George W. Bush and the Bush administration okay. and its involvement. It's dissembling in terms of getting us into Iraq, okay. uh, what happened, um, so it was the pre, nightmare it was pre, that really it was resulted. Pre, it was pre-Michael Moore? No, this was Michael that's, Moore. Okay, that's what I thought. So it was one of, one of his first blockbusters. This was, well, I mean, he, he made a series, but, yes. but Fahrenheit 9-11 was his most successful. He became, that's and, what I thought. Yes, and, uh, yes. you know, but, uh, and, and he was celebrated and, you know, uh, the darling of the Democratic uh, yeah. Party. But the Republicans, uh, through Fox and other, other mechanisms, actually were very successful in... Uh, making the film sound like it was dishonest mm-hmm. and dissembling mm-hmm. and that Michael Moore was a terrible person. And they actually managed to, by the end of the campaign, sort of undermine the credibility mm. of this, mm. of this documentary. Mm. Um, so, but, but in any case, what I found was that if you will, the campaign documentary, yes. you know, or the politicking documentary like Fahrenheit nine 11 really goes back to 1888. Cut it out. Uh, where, uh, Judge John Wheeler uh, did an illustrated lecture called The Tariff Illustrated. The, ter- so, the Tariff? The Tariff. So, oh. you know, in 2004, the Iraq War was the number one issue, yes. it seems to me. Well, in 1888, it was the tariff. Uh, so, international trade? International trade. You know, the very things that were going, that are being discussed right now. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the and, uh, TPP, yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, the Democrats actually had a dominated the press in the big cities. So, uh, in, in fact, uh, Pulitzer had enabled... Joseph Pulitzer, yes. Joseph mm-hmm. Pulitzer had enabled uh, Grover Cleveland to become president of the United States, the mm. first Democrat to become president since before the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, so the newspapers were playing this key role, and the Republicans then were looking for other ways to counter that advantage. Mm-hmm. And Fascinating. Fasc- in this illustrated lecture, the, ter- the, the Tariff Illustrated... Yes. Uh, Judge Wheeler went around to like 80 different uh, venues and showed it to 2,000 different people. Like 175,000 people saw it in the New York area. And Grover Cleveland had won in 1884 by just over 1,000 votes in New York City, in Mm -hmm. New York State. And he lost by 15,000 votes in 1888. And people felt like the Tariff Illustrated was really instrumental in that that, uh, uh, Benjamin Harrison's victory. Politicking and emergent media, U.S. presidential elections of the 1890s. So it's available now. It's uh, you know on Amazon and other places. Yes. Have you had any books, any book signings either here in New Haven or elsewhere? Uh, you know, I, I'm actually going to have one on Wednesday at the uh, uh, New York uh, University uh, Institute for the Humanities. Um, so I, yeah, we we should try to do something. Is there, is there a tour kind of scheduled, or your your publicist is working with you? Or uh, you just... Yeah, I wish I had a publicist. I, <laughs> well, I, I am a well, publicist. Lucy's available. <laughs> Lucy does nothing else. But uh, uh, so something might happen in New Haven. You, you're I, I hope so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We can make. We we got to make that happen. Um, dare, dare I jump to what's going to happen in in twenty plus days in terms of your thinking in this book and uh-huh. just your in the yeah. in the role of media? Well. You know, I, I actually have been blogging the election uh, just just a little bit recently, uh, 
and uh, I have a website that basically is the t- the main title of the book, uh, Politicking okay. and Emergent Media. Uh, Great, we'll put that link right. up. Yes, and uh, but but actually, what I'm trying to do is sort of maintain a certain kind of distance. Okay, I mean that doesn't mean I don't have my own, you know, strong feelings about mm-hmm. who who should win this uh, election, yes. but you know, I've actually been a little frustrated by the New York Times, uh, which it seemed to me was uh, has been extremely pro, pro Hillary from mm-hmm. the very beginning. And look, this is the traditional, the way the newspapers used to work in the 19th century. Yes, they, you they know, were, if you were yeah, yeah. a Democratic newspaper, you know, you were a Democratic newspaper mm-hmm. and it was evident every place. And, you know, if you were a Republican newspaper, sure. likewise. And so, Even here in, in Connecticut, we have the Waterbury Republican, it's the, the daily newspaper. Right. But, uh, but, you know, the New York Times somehow, it seemed to me at a certain point, you know, claimed a certain level of objectivity, mm-hmm. which I, I think, you know, it, it, uh, it doesn't really retain, uh, and uh, so, and, and, and so. Have you seen the recent Trump commercial? I haven't seen the recent Trump commercial. There's one that have you seen it, Lucy? The, it just came out yesterday. I guess saw it for the first time yesterday, the day before. Um, so, not the. Like, t- mm, I mean, so for instance, like I, I was really interested in the fact that Jennifer Flowers uh, went on Twitter in May of 2016. She opened a new Twitter account, okay. and also they revived. A, uh, a a a uh, old and updated an old article in um, the uh, the Daily Mail online, hmm. uh, and and so like they were so Jennifer Flowers was sort of posed to be brought into the election after right you know once it became clear, clear yes. that Trump was going to win. Likewise, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Alicia Machado, who. Miss Universe. Uh, yes, under, yes, yes. She became a U.S. citizen in May of 2016, and then a Hillary supporter in June. And so these two women, you know, were there. You know, I think you know. I, I'm sure, you know, Hillary, Hillary Clinton's campaign has to follow. You know what the Republicans are. They're dirty. There's, there's you know, going to do with, with Bill Clinton's yes. these yes. women. Yes. And so they had to be prepared, and she was, and and so. I, that's what I find interesting is like, you know, you don't, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, you know, that mm, she, mm. she was, and I think this is to her credit, even though people might, Trump might use it to try and embarrass mm-hmm. her, that she, she, she came up with the kind of appropriate response. And then, but we've been seeing this kind of back and forth. I think it went to another level uh, when, I don't know if it was people associated with the Clinton campaign, but, but when, uh, Washington Post uh, came out with you know his uh, hot 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 mic uh, yes, diatribes. Yes, yes, yes. You know he was, then went to the next level and responded, and Indeed. then I think it just spun out of control. And, and you're suggesting though since the late since since the 1880s 1890s this has been increasing or or, or evident. Well, Grover Grover Cleveland, uh, you know, had a, uh, a, a, chi- a an illegitimate, illegitimate child. Yeah. You know, there's some debate about if it was actually his or if he was mm-hmm. covering for a friend, but. You know, but this was actually a big campaign issue in yes. 1884, and yes. uh, you know he and uh, you know so Cleveland, are, where's your, where's your, where's your where's you know your, where's your pa? Yes. And the Democrats ended up being able to say, "Go on to the White House, ha ha ha." Uh, and and even I guess uh, Andrew Jackson in terms of his wife not being or being a harlot or something. So, uh, but so I I asked a question in the sense of I've, I'm blessed to kind of teach a a. a community college course on, on Fridays on fundamentals of communication. And I asked, asked them a lot about how they 
their their content diet, what do they kind of consume for information and news? And they'll mention a lot of the popular webs, websites, but what in this, I would say the average age, although it's an adult population, they're still reasonably young. Their disenchantment, their depression, their angst, their refusal to believe that the media has any semblance of truth is pretty profound. I was, I mean, you hear about it, but to hear 20 people tell you of various ages and, and descriptions and ethnic backgrounds, how disenchanted, disillusioned, angry, depressed, mad, sad they are about how can we find the truth in terms of terms of terms of media di- di- dissemination. That's that that sticks in my mind. Right. That's. Well, I, you know, I think the New York Times, which has you know many good qualities, uh, at the same time it does have a certain kind of arrogance. I, I just remember when uh, De Blasio was running for mayor, and every every major New York City newspaper, including the Times, uh, endorsed his opponent. Yeah, he was second or third. And, yeah. and uh, you know, and then he, he won an overwhelming victory. I mean, it was almost as if, you know, the, that all those newspapers were endorsing him actually had a du- uh, benefited him. Had a, had a duplicity. Yeah. So, but I, I, I'm trying There's to... a kind of reaction against it. So, I mean, the, so these newspapers like the Times, I, I think... It's not really clear, for instance, to what extent the New York Times diatribes against Trump are actually helping Hillary Clinton, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a kind of reaction against them as well. But but I'm I'm curious, and I appreciate your sharing that, Charlie. But I'm curious about your insight. If you're if you were chatting, and I'm sure you have chatted with uh, your undergraduates, but even young people, what advice, suggestions do you share with them? Because you and I have had the chance of you know 40, 50 years of kind of deciphering the news and having the the, the pleasure of of uh, spending time reading, talking with people. But what with, with young people to be so, where I'm coming from, to be so disenchanted, I'm concerned that they'll just really turn off, go to Facebook solely. What advice would you give the, the young folks to kind of, if not keep hope alive, but not to feel that everything, that lies do not predominate in the media? Uh, if, if, if you could even have any, <laughs> even if you want to take out that case. Well, you know, I mean, I think I think you really have to, you know, be proactive. You can't okay. just be a consumer of media, mm-hmm. you know, okay. which is sort of, I think, what tended to be the model when there were basically three major television mm-hmm. networks. Um, so yeah, people have to be you know suspicious and, and, and go different places and and, okay. and, and even become analytic. Good, so good, good. You know, good. I, for instance, Donald Trump has really made um, uh, Twitter. Uh, I mean, the, Twitter yes, is really yes, the new media yes, of this yes, election. Yeah, yes. YouTube, which had been Barack Obama's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. saving grace and mm-hmm. the new media there, you know, it's just not a factor as far as I can tell. Yes. And, uh, you know, Trump has been very good at doing Twitter in the first person. You look at Hillary Clinton. I mean, her Twitter page is much, again, much, much less interesting. It's mm-hmm. sort of a new ag- a news aggregator mm-hmm. of, of nice things to say about her. So when Ted Cruz... Uh, finally endorses Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump is very gracious in accepting him and how pleased yes. he is. And when the New York Times in, endorses uh, Hillary Clinton, they just put it up on her on her Twitter page. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't say, oh, you know, the New York Times yes. has been so supportive. Thank you very much. It's So it's, one's in the third person. Hillary Clinton's Twitter right. page is in the third person and his is in the first. So, uh, which is, I think, why yes. people really check his out. Yes, well, we have to get you back in, I say, I think January, February, let's see how the dust, after the inauguration, kind of get your views on things. Actually, Lucy was out at the uh, the presidential debate on Sunday, so we have to get to have you talk about that now, but we can't have you talk about it now because we're, we're kind of wrapping up. Right. But Charlie, we're giving, I'm giving the New Haven docs a short shrift. 
And in our, our con- kind of concluding uh, moments, and you've worn, when I look at you, I see your five or six heads and your five or six hats that you're wearing. But the New Haven documentary, doc, uh, documentary, New Haven film documentary, Festival. Doc, documentary Film Festival is every spring. It's every June. Every, well, every June. Right. So it's, we, last year, uh, this past June, we had 11 days. It was you know, two weekends and in between. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the, the scale that we would like to have moving Tremendous. forward. And, uh, you know, we already have our opening night film, which is, uh, uh-huh. uh, Gorman Bouchard's, uh, pizza love story about mm-hmm. the three, uh, premier, uh, pizza, pizza, pizzerias, uh, pizzas in, uh, in New Haven, Tremendous. Sally's, uh, Pepe's and modern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the battle over which is the, which is the best, uh-huh. uh, are you going to have samples also for us to kind of have a I, consumer I that, vote? I, I think that that's uh, that's in the, the works. Part of the plan, right. okay. And then uh, the f- the final weekend, um, which uh, is also we do in conjunction with the International Festival of Arts and Ideas, mm-hmm. uh, we we have our sort of we, we bring in a preeminent documentary filmmaker from outside. This year we're going to be bringing in D. A. Penny Baker and Chris Hedges uh, with uh, you know a number of films from yes. the last ten years. You know. Uh, concluding with unlocking the cage about uh, about animal rights and, and oh, particularly rights. Okay. Uh, with uh, with uh, chimpanzees and 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 it's you mentioned that the last decade has grown I, I would say significantly over the last five years in particular yeah well this is uh, this 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 coming uh, year will be our fourth annual so oh, you're, yeah, okay, we really actually okay, okay. right started very small and got got here okay and yeah. and what's what's that apart all apart in terms of just uh New filmmakers, I guess the, the 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 preeminence of the the documentary documentary film festival, the uh, the good the, the good word, the good spin that's kind of emanated after each each year. What do you think has has led to kind of people recognizing that it's really a force here? And that you don't have to go to Con, you don't have to go to <laughs> you can come to New. <laughs> well, Haven. I think our goal has been to to be, develop a sense of community. You mm. know, I Gorman and I met each other out at the. Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in Missoula, Montana, mm-hmm. and his wife actually manages the coffee shop half a block from my office. So oh. that we had to meet yeah. in Missoula when actually we could have met half a block away <laughs> just seemed to be outrageous. And, and, and it was really, uh, I think, a motivation to 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 start a documentary film yes. festival that, yes. that could deal with the community in yes. New Haven, Connecticut. So it's a regional and local film festival, uh, and I think that that and, and the cost. The cost, <laughs> in terms of what? Well, you know, we're we're, we're hoping to actually find some commercial sponsorship. But I, mean, I mean, the tickets, ticket price. Oh, the tickets. I mean, uh, you know, so far, I mean, it's a free event. This is what I want you to mention. This is a free event, a free event, and that that's just so fascinating, Charlie. We're just wrapping up. Any, and I say that with really hesitance and regret, but you got to come back in January, February, or March. Is that a? Can I get a verbal public pledge? Do you sure. consider doing that? All right, <laughs> Lucy, make a note. Any uh, final words or thoughts for folks? Because, uh, again, there's so much you're involved with the, the DVD set, the, the books, the film festival, teaching, Calhoun College, the kind of the atmosphere, the tenor, the, 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 the persona of the institution that you spent, well, I won't, at least 20, including undergrad, you know, 20, right. 20 30 years. So any closing thoughts as, you, as we kind of wind down? Well, you know, I think Yale is a, offers a lot of cultural events, mm-hmm. uh, like events that tackle these subjects, like what's going on with the election, that mm-hmm. you know, that that people in New Haven could potentially get more involved in. Uh, there, it's not as easy to find out about what's going on in 
at Yale unless you're directly connected with mm-hmm. it. But there are there are ways. There's mm-hmm. a there's a arts website and stuff sure, like that. But sure. you know, l- la- last night, for instance, we brought in uh, uh, this this uh, woman filmmaker with uh, uh, my Little White Lie, hmm. uh, which is like a really important documentary, uh, which got a lot of attention just a year or two ago. And so, so the, you know, people don't so, really know about these things. And, so, so and well, we the, the find, Whitney Humanities Center site is really a great site. The, the Whitney, Whitney Humanities Center, right. Theodore Lehrman Center for, slave, for Abolition of Slavery is a, is a great one to kind of go to. There you go. Uh, so just kind of do a little Google search, and uh, and you'll, I'm going to an implicit bias uh, event at 12 o'clock today at the med school that's open to the public uh-huh. in terms of the medical profession, how implicit bias in, impacts recruitment, retention, selection, um, experiments on people, you know, right. DNA, et cetera. So there's so much we're here in Yelltown. Let's not, let's not, let's take advantage of it and not be Trump, right. not be trampled by it. And, and of course, you know, people at Yale should, uh, vice go versa. more, right. Vice versa. <laughs> be going to the New Haven public free public library, Indeed. which is what we're actually trying to do with NH docs. Right? Oh, tremendous, tremendous. Great. Charlie, thank you so much. It's always, it's, it's been a pleasure thank you. As, as usual. We'll, we'll make it happen again. Lucy, thank you. And you listen to Tom Ficklin's show and chat with you next Monday. And Lucy, in concluding, let people know how they can kind of find us if they uh, have, if they've haven't had a chance to listen to the whole the whole sh- shebang. Great. Uh, well, if you like me want to go on a Tom Ficklin marathon, um, there are a couple different ways that you can find us. You can go to WNHH Community Radio on Facebook, on iTunes, or on SoundCloud. Or we tweet all the shows, and so you can find us at WNHHLP. And like the New Haven Documentary Film Festival, it's all free. Tremendous.